Hi there. This is Brian Breaker, editor of Ad Age and host of the AdLib podcast. Did you know that we have two other podcasts in addition to this one? AdBlock is a series of conversations with top agency creatives about everything except the work they do. And the Marketer's Brief podcast is a deep dive into the day's top marketing headlines with the people who are making the news. I'll be giving this week's AdLib podcast over to my colleague EJ Schultz, AdAge's managing editor for marketing and host of Marketer's Brief, mostly because I've been on vacation and don't have anything queued up for this week. Here, EJ sits down with ad lawyer Jeff Greenbaum to discuss the brewing trade war and murkiness of claims that products are made in the USA. Give a listen and be sure to subscribe to Marketer's Brief and AdBlock Podcast. AdLib and I will be back in earnest next week. Hello, my name is EJ Schultz, Assistant Managing Editor of AdAge, and welcome to another edition of the Marketer's Brief Podcast, our weekly discussion about marketing news and trends that have the industry buzzing. There is a trade war brewing, and products that are, quote, made in the USA are taking on more importance in consumers' minds. But it turns out the FTC, which is responsible for regulating the accuracy of such claims, lacks some teeth. Here to talk about the new movement to increase the agency's powers when it comes to made-in-the-USA marketing is ad lawyer Jeff Greenbaum, managing partner at Frankfurt, Kernet, Klein, and Sells. We also get into some other legal issues, like what consumer protection authorities are monitoring during the deal-ridden back-to-school shopping season. If you're a retail marketer, or even just a regular consumer, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. So let's get to it. Hello, Jeff. Welcome to the Marketer's Brief Podcast. Thanks for having me. So we wanted to talk about a few legal advertising issues today. I wanted to start out with something that I know you've been watching uh, regarding made in USA or made in America claims. I mean, this sounds something pretty straightforward, right? Something that's either made here or it's not. But it sounds like the FTC is possibly going to strengthen the enforcement of this particular claim. Can, can you kind of bring us up to speed on what's going on here? Yeah, so one of the interesting things about uh, the FTC's attention on made in the USA issues is, you know, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, you know, has pretty limited resources. They only bring a few cases a year. Uh, they tend to not focus on one area in particular, but they try to hit during the year the high points of the kinds of really important things that are going on. But there's one thing that's really stood out over the last several years and that's been the FTC's attention on Made in USA claims. They probably bring more Made in USA investigations, settlements, uh, closing letters, which we can talk about, than really than they do on any other topic. So this has been something that the FTC has really been focused on. They've really been looking at the way in which companies are making Made in USA claims. And as a result of it, it gets a lot of attention, uh, both from the industry and from the commissioners themselves. So there's sort of a couple interesting things that have sort of been brewing uh, over the last year or so. The first thing is, is the FTC brought about a year or so ago uh, uh, two cases, one against a company called Patriot Puck, which was making Made in USA claims about its hockey pucks that were actually made in China. And then uh, they brought a case against these companies called Sandpaper and, and Piper Gear, which were making kind of backpacks, travel products, and they were also making American-made products, even though most of them were imported. And what happened was is that it exposed this rift among the commissioners about whether the FTC's whole Made in USA enforcement program was working, um, 
you know, the concern, basically what happens is, is you know, when the FTC brings an enforcement action, they don't generally have the authority to get penalties. They usually get you to stop making the claim, but there isn't like uh, a penalty that they can just automatically award or even that a court or a court could award based on false advertising. Totally different if you were sued by an attorney general, uh, different if a private parties were to sue, but the FTC doesn't have this kind of civil penalty authority in a normal false advertising case. And so some of the commissioners started to ask the question, well, wait a second, if we're bringing all of these main USA cases and people keep making false and misleading main USA claims, kind of what are we doing here? You know, what's the purpose of all of these settlements that we're entering into where people don't have to pay anything, people don't make any admissions of liability, you know, do we really need to do something different? And so this, this debate continued uh, to sort of fester uh, until uh, the the chairman several months ago said, um, you know, we're going to have a we're going to we're going to hold some workshops and we're going to look into you know whether our made in the USA enforcement is is working and that's what happened last week. Last week the FTC announced that for uh, the first time in a very very long time they're actually going to look at the made in the USA standard and they're going to ask some very very big questions about whether it's working and whether it should be changed. So you mentioned a couple examples. It sounds pretty brazen, like they're just outright lying, these these marketers, or is there is there some gray area here? You know, I know in the automotive industry, a lot of parts are perhaps made in Mexico, but the car is assembled in the U.S., and there could be some gray area on, you know, what you can technically call as, quote unquote, made in the USA or not. Well, um, I think that I think that some of it's brazen. I think some of it's just making made in USA claims where the product is clearly not made here. But I think what's probably of most what's most interesting and what's most relevant to sort of major national advertisers is the difficulty in applying the standard to the real world in, in which products are made today. So the FTC's made in USA standard is an all or virtually all standard. That means that if you're going to make an unqualified claim that a product is made here, you have to have proof that it was all or virtually all made here. That means that all significant parts and processing uh, should be of U.S. origin. That means that only negligible uh, non-U.S. content should be included. The problem is, is that there's no bright line test. Nowhere has the FTC said that means that 95% has to be made here or that certain things have to have happened here in order for it to be made here, other than the fact that we know that no matter what, the final assembly or processing has to, has to happen here. So I think that one of the struggles that advertisers are having, not the sort of brazen, try to rip off consumer advertisers, but sort of the normal advertisers that you expect, is that you know, companies have a lot of US operations. They have major manufacturing facilities. They have lots of employees here. There are products that are literally being put together here through substantial efforts of US employees. And a lot of companies feel like, hey, this product is made here. Yeah, it's true that maybe the metal came from somewhere else or some of the parts came from somewhere else. But so much of what we're doing really is, is of U.S. origin that we think that it's consistent with consumers' expectations that we would make a main USA claim. And I think that the trouble that companies are having, I'll give you an example. Uh, last year, the FTC looked into advertising for Gillette. Uh, Gillette was making a built-in Boston claim. Uh, the problem was is that you know the FTC took the position that built-in Boston is the same as a made in USA claim. And in fact, although Gillette had manufacturing operations here and employees here and substantial operations here, the FTC felt that they still didn't qualify for the standard. So I, I think that the real gray area and the thing that we're struggling with here 
is that number one, there's no bright line test. The FTC has never given us a percentage that we can apply to know that if this amount of processing, this amount of parts, this amount of the cost of the product uh, was here, that then it qualifies for claim. I think that's number one. And two, I think companies need more guidance about ways that they can safely talk about their presence in the U.S. without crossing the line. So if the FTC is poised to perhaps debate increasing or actually leveling real penalties for this, will they also accompany those with some actual kind of more clarifying standards like you're talking about? Well, you know, it's it's really unclear at this point. I mean, when the FTC announced that they were going to hold this workshop, they asked a lot of big questions. Typically what the FTC does is, you know, when they're sort of thinking through what they want to do on an issue and what they want to say on an issue, they hold a workshop, they solicit public comments, and they try to collect as much information as they can. One of the things that the FTC doesn't like to do is sort of legislate in the way that you would you know you would expect Congress to do. What they like to do is, you know, they're applying their own standards. And what they're trying to do is figure out, you know, what is consumer understanding of, of a claim. And then they try to give guidance that sort of helps people understand how to apply that. In other words, they don't want to make up a standard and say all made in USA means that X percent of a product, you know, is made here. They want to say, well, what do consumers understand it to mean? And let's create a standard that is consistent with consumers' understanding. Uh, and that sounds like a good thing. In other words, they're not trying to make something up. They're trying to actually have their standards reflect reality. The problem is, is that because there is no standard, consumers don't really know how to, don't, companies really don't know how to apply it. So, so, so FTC is asking some very, very big questions here, like, you know, how do consumers interpret those claims? You know, are we right in thinking that consumers interpret them as all or virtually all made here? Another question the FTC is asking is, is you know, does anyone have any information about what percentage of you know, a product has to be of U.S. origin for a product to be made here? In other words, what do consumers really think that that means? And then they're asking questions about should there be a bright line test? Uh, you know, they suggested in their, in their, in their questions uh, to the public you know, is, for example, should we have a, a standard like 85%, which the fact that they threw a number out there was, I think, a big surprise to a lot of people because the FTC has really never talking about, talked about any kind of number when they're talking about Made in USA. Though I think a, a, another big question that they're asking is, is should the FTC do a rulemaking? Um, more complicated than, than it's worth getting into here, but it is very, very difficult for the FTC to create rules. The FTC's Made in USA standard is simply advisory guidance to industry about what would violate the law. It's not a rule or a regulation. It's not independently enforceable. Uh, but one of the questions they're asking is whether they should actually promulgate regulations that would be enforceable uh, that sets forth a new Made in USA standard. The significance of that is if there was a rule, then the FTC would have the ability to issue penalties. Uh, there's, a, there's a consumer advocacy organization called Truth in Advertising and uh, also last week, coincidentally, they also submitted a petition to the FTC asking the FTC to issue a rule because Tina's position is, is that the uh, FTC's enforcement program isn't really working and that the only way it's going to work is if they have the ability to issue civil penalties. So this is all occurring against the backdrop of a, a trade war. And I would imagine, but I wanted to ask you, I know you're not you're not a marketer, you're a lawyer, but are we seeing more made in USA claims just because of the political environment right now? Well, you know, one of, 
Yeah, you know, one of the things I had looked into uh, a while ago was, you know, I, I know that Main USA claims has been something that's been of interest at the FTC for many, many years, uh, but certainly before the Trump administration. And so one of the things that I looked at was, you know, has there been an increase in enforcement at the FTC uh, in, the, in, the, in the current administration? And the answer is not really. The, the FTC has, pretty been, has been pretty consistent about its interest in this issue. But I think that the new interest in this issue, the commissioners debating the effectiveness of their enforcement program, the, the commission's willingness to hold a workshop and re-examine a very long, well-established standard, you know, is no doubt a result of the attention in America right now about uh, these trade issues and about how important it has become to a segment of consumers to buy a product that is, in fact, made in the United States. So last question before we leave this topic, what's your prediction? I mean, these things tend to take a long time. Is, is there going to just be months and months, if not years of debate before we get a conclusion to this? Are you expecting something to be in place by 2020? I, the, the FTC tends to be very, very thoughtful about these issues. They tend to want to collect a lot of data and they tend to really take their time before they issue new uh, guidance. You know, if I were, if I were a crystal ball reader, I would say it's unlikely that they're going to start a rulemaking. Uh, the reason for that is, is that you know, there are very, very few rules the FTC enforces, and it's a little hard to justify why one specific advertising claim should have a rule about it, why most others don't. So I think that it's unlikely that they would engage in rulemaking. I do think, however, that there's a good chance that they issue revised a revised enforcement policy statement on unmade USA, USA claims. And I wouldn't be surprised if they give some more concrete guidance to consumer to businesses to help them uh, make these claims better. You know, one of the concerns of the guidance right now is is that if the guidance were more concrete, it might help con- companies make these claims in a way that would be useful to consumers. And I think that the FTC wants companies to feel like they can get that information out. But if companies don't know whether this percentage qualifies or that percentage qualifies, you know, by giving some more specific guidance. It could really help uh, consumers the information that they want and they need. Moving on, I wanted to also talk to you about the retail environment in general. Uh, we're kind of finishing up back to school shopping season. We'll be in the holiday shopping season before you know it. Uh, you see a lot of and you know the economy possibly slowing down. You're going to see a lot of attention on deals and marketers kind of hawking pricing differences and things like that. What are some of the red flags out there from a legal perspective as these brands try to sell their products in this environment? Well, you know, one of the things is is there's just a few times during the year where, you know, a lot of the shopping occurs, where retailers are really focused, where consumers are spending a lot of money and where there's, you know, an increased likelihood that consumers could be confused about, you know, sort of what's happening and what these deals look like. And so I think that, you know, when you're talking back to school, which for many people, for many retailers is one of the most important, uh, you know, shopping seasons of the year. And for many consumers, it's a time when they spend, you know, a lot of money. And so, and same thing with the holiday season and Black Friday and all that. And I think that in, during these periods are times when, you know, retailers need to be extra careful because, because consumers are spending all this money, it means that regulators and plaintiffs are also looking at their practice as well to make sure that uh, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. I think that the first issue that is probably the biggest one that retailers need to think about is this whole question of what does it mean to be a sale? Uh, you know, retailers have seen a lot of lawsuits 
over the last several years where uh, plaintiffs, consumers, plaintiffs have been arguing that the original prices that retailers are offering aren't really bona fide prices. And that, you know, it makes it seem like a consumer is actually getting a product at a deal when in fact it's not really a deal. In other words, the idea is they're saying, hey, this product has been, you know, was originally $20 and now we're selling it for $15. The problem is, is the product either, you know, hasn't been sold for $20 for five years or was never really sold for $20 and that that original price is a fictitious price. So I think that issue number one for retailers to focus on is make sure that, you know, if you're offering a sale, if you're offering something that it's a special offer, you better make sure that it really is a sale and that it really is a special offer. Um, you should never use, uh, you should never inflate prices for purposes of reducing them to make it seem like you're you're uh, getting a product at a good deal. Uh, there's also many many state laws on this, and you know you really actually have to pay attention to you know how the law in California is different from somewhere else. How does how do you determine, how do you truthfully determine what an original price is? I am actually personally shopping for a mattress right now. And it's there's all these Labor Day mattress sales and you go on these websites and the prices, the sales, the pr- listed prices are look way marked down, you know, from what they say is the original price. If I'm a consumer, how do I actually verify that this is an actual price drop? I think, I think as a consumer, it's very, very difficult to figure out if, if what you're being told is true. And that's one of the reasons that we've seen more enforcement and more attention on these issues, because you as a consumer have to rely on what the retailer is telling you. So, you know, I think that from a retailer standpoint, the way you determine whether something's a, uh, a real original price is you ask yourself, you know, is this, you know, without getting into the specific differences and the way that different states apply the law, you kind of ask yourself, Hey, did we establish this price because we really believe we're going to have substantial sales at this price? And did we, in fact, you know, offer that product for sale at that price for a reasonable period of time? And were we, in fact, getting sales? And then is the price we're offering and now truly a limited time special offer, something that's related to a you know, particular sale we're having, you know, whether it's a Labor Day sale or a Christmas Day sale or something like that. But from a, from a consumer standpoint, you know, there's really very little, very little way to know. But the regulators would actually dive in and say, "Okay, prove to us you actually made some sales at this quote unquote original price." Well, you know, different different states apply the standards differently. The FTC looks at it differently. You know, at the end of the day, it's really about you know was this your bona fide price? In other words, to take to take one state example, you know, for the last ninety days, you know, were you selling the product at this price? And if so, you know, that probably means that you intended that product to be sold at that price, and that you really thought it was a legitimate price. As opposed to a company that you know offers the price, offers a product at that price, you know, from twelve to four in the morning one day, just to say it's the original price, and then immediately marks it down for the purpose of uh, saying, "Hey, you're getting a good deal." So, from a brand or marketer perspective, what else should they be looking out for that is going to be coming under the microscope when it comes to these shopping situations? Yeah, you know, I would say that the second thing that is probably the most frustrating to consumers. Is whether when when advertisers don't properly disclose the details, you know, they you know consumers if they see a special offer, if they see something being advertised, they expect that they're going to be able to get that thing, and there are no other sort of gotchas or special terms that apply. And so you know both because the law requires it, and because it's good from a consumer uh, relationship perspective, you know, we always say we always say to advertisers, make sure that if there is anything important that consumers need to know. You know, if, if, if you're going to buy that mattress and they're going to charge you extra for the box spring, you know, don't bury it in the fine print, 
right? Let consumers know upfront, you know, what the terms of the offers are so they're not frustrated either when they try to buy it online or whether they try to come to the store. Is this kind of transparency getting better or worse in, in your view, like what you've seen? Well, I think that the the whole issue of disclosures and advertising is a very complicated one. Um, you know, when the FTC first issued its guidance on online disclosures, I don't know, 15 years ago or something like that, you know, it was a very hopeful, forward-looking document. The FTC kind of had this idea that with, you know, the internet and the rise of technology and the ability to use all of these techniques online to give people information, that sort of the options available to advertisers would increase. And suddenly it would be a whole lot easier to, to convey this information to consumers. You know, when the FTC issued its revised guidance just a few years ago, they kind of gave up on that. And they kind of said, you know what, what we were hoping for wasn't really working and that sort of traditional disclosure standards apply. And so I think that what's happening right now is it's actually very difficult to get important information across to consumers. The, the standard that the FTC and that's applied generally in the United States right now is that for a disclosure to be effective, it has to be clear and conspicuous. And, you know, one of the sort of hallmarks of clear and conspicuous is unavoidability, meaning when someone sees an advertising claim, are they going to see, read, and understand the qualifying information that accompanies that claim? The problem is, is there's often a lot of information and there's often not a lot of space to disclose it. And, you know, if the FTC is saying it's not enough to let people scroll down or click see more or go one click away to find more information and sort of tell everybody that it all needs to be right there, you know, we're put in this position where it's very, very difficult to get that information across. Um, I'm, a, I'm a very big advocate of sort of that we should look at our whole disclosure of policy in the United States and ask the question of whether, you know, putting blocks of fine print at the, at the end of television commercials, you know, sticking tiny fine print in online advertising because our fear is that we haven't included everything doesn't help anybody and that we really need to come up with a better way to communicate this information to consumers. That sounds right to me, but we will have to end it here. We're about out of time. There's a lot more we could get into. Maybe we'll have you back on sometime very soon to, to kind of touch on some of this other stuff. I'll look forward to it. Thanks for your time. Take care. That was ad lawyer Jeff Greenbaum. My name is EJ Schultz, Assistant Managing Editor of Ad Age. I want to thank our producer, Max Sternlich, and invite you to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite player. We promise to live up to our name and keep these brief, or at least short enough for your morning commute. Catch you next time.